You're listening to audio from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more information about Pleasant Valley, visit our website at pleasantvalley.cc. So Acts chapter 9, today is week 24 in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. And I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word miracle. I think what we have done with this idea of miracles is, is we have kind of neutered it, for lack of a better term. Or we've, we've minimized the idea of the miraculous because we basically call everything a miracle these days. So, for example, we, we use miracle language a lot in sports, right? So uh, there's a couple of Georgia fans here, so I apologize. But, like, South Carolina beat Georgia in football yesterday. So I remember at one point I said to James, I was like, it's a miracle that, that South Carolina won that game. Or, for example, maybe you're a college student, and, you know, most kids that drop out of pre-med do so because of organic chemistry. And so maybe you're like, I got this organic chemistry professor, and it'll be a miracle if I ever get an A in that class. Or, for example, this happens, like, on a, almost a monthly basis. People meet me and Annie for the first time, and they look at her, and they look at me, and they look back at her, and they kind of turn their nose up, and they say, it's a miracle that she ever married you. Fair enough. That's all true. But I I think what we do is we kind of normalize the miraculous so that almost anything becomes a miracle. It's a miracle if I remember to pay that bill this week. Well, that's not really miraculous. That's what Sarah McLaughlin does in your Sarah McLaughlin moment of the week. Enjoy it. You'll never have one of these again. But she had this song back in 2006 uh, where she says, isn't it remarkable? Like every time a raindrop falls, it's just another ordinary miracle today. Birds in winter have their fling. They always make it home in spring. It's just another ordinary miracle today. When you wake up every day, please don't throw your dreams away. Hold them close to your heart because we are all part of the ordinary miracle. So I appreciate the sentiment, and I understand what she's saying. But maybe you can make the case that rain falling is, is a miracle. But I think when we come to Scripture... We, we see a different understanding of the miraculous in, in a way that is not ordinary. And it's not normal. So today in Acts chapter 9, uh, we see Luke give us an example of back-to-back miracles that are anything but ordinary. So here's the context. Over the past few weeks, we've seen the gospel has been spreading outside of home base in Jerusalem because persecution has, has come in, and Saul of Tarsus, who is a terrorist, the modern-day equivalent of, of ISIS, was radically converted to Christianity. He believed in Jesus, and so now Saul, uh, Paul, is, is out preaching the gospel. But now, today in Luke 9 at the end, uh, Luke is shifting our attention back to the apostle Peter, away from Saul in the ministry of Peter, and he gives us this incredible story of, of back-to-back miracles, these, this supernatural act of divine power. And notice what the Holy Spirit says in verse 32. He says, As Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So this is about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem if you're a geography person. Verse 33. Uh, so he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And notice what they did. And they turned to the Lord. 
Now, this has been a theme all throughout Acts that Luke has been developing. God used a miracle, or what Luke likes to call a, a sign or a wonder, for the primary purpose of drawing people to faith in Christ. So when you see the miraculous in Scripture and signs and wonders, they are not an end in and of themselves. They serve the greater purpose of capturing the attention of the lost and validating or authenticating the gospel message so that when speculative or uh, skeptical people see a paralyzed man for eight years get up and start walking, they, they begin to pay attention and say, well, maybe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe in him. And so that's what you see with signs and wonders. But that's the first miracle. A man that's paralyzed gets up and walks. But here's a second miracle, which you could almost make the case that is even more unbelievable. Verse 36, now there was in Joppa, so that's located in modern city of Tel Aviv, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. So by the way, if moms, if you're expecting and you're prayerfully considering a name for your daughter in, in the name of Jesus, I implore you to name her anything but Dorcas. Uh, can you imagine the counseling and the therapy that this woman would need as an adult? The, for the fact that her parents, uh, in, a, in a cruel and unusual punishing kind of way, named her Dorcas uh, as a kid. But the neat thing about Dorcas, and I, I'm sure that somebody in here has an aunt named Dorcas, and I'll, I'll probably pay for that. But notice what the Bible says about her. She was full of good words works and acts of charity. I, I, every time this past week I've read that verse, I've thought of Paula Horn, one of our founding members who is now in heaven, a woman who her whole life, until she breathed her last breath in that fight with cancer, was full of good works and acts of charity. What a legacy. But in verse 37, in those days, she became ill and she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, you'll, you'll read right past that and miss something amazing. It was customary to wash a body after death. But it was not customary to wash a body and then place the body in the upper room. The custom was you would wash the body and go bury the body. But that's not what they do here. Because they're anticipating resurrection. They're not done with the body because God's going to raise it from the dead. Now, I want to build my case for this. Next verse, verse 38. Since Letta was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, having heard of the miraculous that was happening, the paralyzed man is walking. Other miracles are happening. So they know the power of God is in the area. They sent two men to Peter, urging him, please come to us without delay. Notice the sense of urgency. Notice the faith these people had. Now you see why. After she died, they didn't go bury her body, but they preserved it in the upper room. Why did they do that? They didn't bury her because they believed. God gave them the faith. They sent for Peter because they believed she was going to be raised from the dead. Not at the end when Christ came back, but like... Jesus, you can raise her from the dead like tonight. Go get Peter. What if we had that kind of faith? Verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. And when Peter arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside Peter, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was still with them. Notice what Peter does. Peter 
put them all outside. Now, that's a detail you'll pass right over. That is exactly what Jesus did right before he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Do you remember in the gospel? He said, oh, y'all, outside. So Peter here is emulating Jesus. He's about to speak in the authority of Jesus. Peter knelt down just like Jesus, and he prayed. And turning to the body. So notice the impersonal nature at first. It's a, it's a corpse. She's dead. This has not been a misdiagnosis. She's dead. He turned to the body, and he said, Tabitha, arise. Another key detail. Besides one little consonant, that phrase, Tabitha, arise, that is the identical statement to what Jesus Christ said right before as he was raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Peter says exactly what Jesus said. And she opened her eyes, and she saw Peter and she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up. And then I love this part. Then he, he called the saints and the widows. Look, I love this phrase. He presented her alive. Wow. He presented her alive. They didn't have social media. They couldn't tweet it or share it on Facebook. But the word spread because it became known throughout all Joppa in verse 42. Everybody was talking about the dead woman that uh, ain't dead no more. And many believed in the Lord. So two examples in one text, a miracle or a sign and a wonder helps authenticate the gospel message. People see the miracle. Okay, I'll believe in Christ. But not just that. This woman being raised from the dead is a little snapshot of the resurrection of the dead that is coming for all of us who are in Jesus. Normally, when you go to the funeral home, you, you, you won't and you shouldn't expect the person to come up out of the casket. Ordinarily, Jesus isn't doing that today could but but what happens is in the new testament you see dead people coming back to a life on occasion to give us little snapshots of the future power that is coming that one day everyone like dorcas everyone like jarius's daughter everyone in christ like lazarus will come up out of the grave if you're in christ death is not the end cancer will not get the final word and in your Johnny Cash moment of the week, there ain't no grave that's going to hold that body down for those of us that are in Christ. So two incredible, miraculous stories and two very important truths that I want us to see. And here's the first. It's that Jesus doesn't just forgive us. He declares us to be saints. You're like, well, where'd that come from? I thought we were talking about miracles. Well, to be clear, this is not the main point of the text. But, but it's a hidden theological truth. This, this, this profound little nugget of truth hidden in the text. And if you read it too quickly, you'll just glide right over it. And you'll miss something that, that I think has huge implications for many of us in this room. So if you're here, and it's hard for you to believe sometimes that God's actually pleased with you. If, if you tend to think that God's countenance is one that is scowling at you in disgust or frustration, then, then, then pastorally, that's why I'm going to spend a few moments here. 
on what's not even the main point of the text, because I just think some of us need this. And, and here's, here's what it is. Three times in Acts chapter 9, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to refer to Christians as saints. Let me show you the three examples. Go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 13. This was three or four weeks ago. Ananias was wrestling with God because God said, Ananias, go pray for Saul, the guy that used to lead ISIS. And he's like, I'm not going to pray for him. That he, he will kill me. And so he's wrestling with God. But notice what Ananias says to the Lord in Acts 9, 13. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, that's Saul, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. To your saints. Now, come back to today's text, verse 32. As Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints. Did you notice that? To the saints who lived at Lydda. And then skip down to verse 41, and you see it again. Dorcas is healed. Notice what Luke says. Peter gave her his hand, raised her up, and then Peter called the saints and widows, and he presented her alive. So three times in one chapter, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to refer to Christians as saints. Now, the, the Greek word for saints here, translated, can mean holy. It, it means being different or set apart. It was the use of the word for God's people in, in Israel. His chosen, peculiar, distinct, set-apart, sanctified people. So it, it means to be a saint. That, that God sees them as set-apart and holy and righteous before Him. That's what it means. But now, what do we typically think about when we hear the word saint? It's, it's not that. So if you want to know what pop culture and even evangelical culture thinks about with saints, of course what you do is you Google it. And so I Google image this, the word saint. First three images that pop up are very indicative. Here they are. There's one. There's two. There's three. What do they all have in common? None of us look like any of them. Nobody, I don't see any halos. I mean, those lights kind of make it look like because they're so bright, but I don't see any halos. So when we think about saint, we think about this extraordinary, exalted subset of minority Christians like Mother Teresa or Saint Peter, Saint Paul. When you think about a saint, ladies, you're not thinking about your husband, probably. No, you're thinking about the person carved in the stained glass windows at the church you grew up in. We have all of these conceptions of, of saints. And so we have this misconception that saints are like Mother Teresa kind of people. Or maybe if you were raised Catholic, maybe you even pray in a, in a, through a saint or in a saint's name on St. Patrick's Day, for example. But, but then we think the rest of us, though, like we're just ordinary Christians, you know, like you've got this subset, and then you've got the rest of us, and we're just kind of, you know, oh, dirty, rotten sinners saved by grace, right? Like, that, that's that's kind of how we, we think. Many of us view ourselves in that way, but the problem is that is not how the Bible says God views us. 
This is a paradigm shift for some of us that is so important. In Scripture, when you see the word saints, it's not referring to the heroes of the faith. It's not referring to people who are worthy of having their picture ingrained in stained glass windows. Instead, saints in the Scripture, it refers to everyday, ordinary Christians. People like you and me. People that still fall short. People that still sin. We still get it wrong. We still deal with lust and anger and bitterness. We sometimes forget to have our quiet times. We still yell at our kids. We still have bad thoughts sometimes. We're everyday, ordinary, struggling Christians, and yet the Bible says we're saints. Paul does this all throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you a quick survey. In Romans 1 verse 7, Paul is writing to ordinary Christians in Rome. And he says, to all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints. So who are the saints? Not those in the church that were just the pastors or the deacons or the apostles. No, he says, all those in Rome who were called by God. Those are the saints. And then he does it again in 1 Corinthians 1 in his introduction. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all those in every place including Owensboro, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then he does it again in 2 Corinthians. Notice how when Paul begins the majority of his letters, he addresses the congregations as saints to the church of God that's in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. And then in Colossians 1, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Ephesians 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus, etc. Philippians 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons. And I could go on and on and on, but do you see the point? Christians are referred to as saints 61 times in the New Testament. Now, here's what all of that means. Beloved, when we meet Jesus... We are no longer just, oh, dirty, rotten sinners saved by grace that God tolerates. No, no, no. In Christ, you are a saint before God. And if we're in Christ this morning, listen, and if we don't think about ourselves as saints, then we're not thinking about ourselves biblically. And we are living in an identity crisis, and we don't know who we are. Because if you think about yourself merely as a no dirty, rotten sinner saved by grace that God has to tolerate, then you will probably live like a no dirty, rotten sinner saved by grace, thinking you're always in God's doghouse. But that is not who we are in Christ our sin record was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more your identity is not your past it is not that divorce from 12 years ago it is not the abortion you had in college it is not the affair you had that is not your past that is not who you are your old self has been crucified with Christ at the cross Romans chapter 6 which means our chief identity in Christ is no longer that we are first and foremost sinners. Now I'm going to say that again because that will wreck some theologies. We still sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1. However, in Christ, God's fundamental disposition towards us in God's dictionary, when he thinks about his kids, his first thought is not sinner, it's saint. 
It's chosen. It's precious. It's set apart. It's holy. It's blameless. It's righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. If you're in Christ, you're not just a piece of junk God tolerates your righteous in Christ. So you have to learn to look in the mirror and see what God sees. If you're anything like me, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I'm like, well, I'm just a saintly fella. Like, I've never had that thought. Like, the world is just blessed to have me. It's usually, uh, we'd probably be a lot better off without us, right? We feel that way so often. But we have to train ourselves to think Biblically, which is why you need to read the Word of God every day so you learn to use the Bible language. So whatever you think about yourself, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. God's opinion of you is the only opinion of you that really matters. And God says, this is who you are in Christ. Who He says you are is who you really are, not who your ex says you are, not who your critics say that you are. It's who God says you are in Christ. And in Christ... You are a saint. You are set apart. You are distinct. You are peculiar. You are loved more than you could ever imagine. That's what Jesus has done. Secondly, though, and in conclusion, the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts is the work of Jesus Christ. So I want to do some more theology here. So go back to verse 32 and, and notice, notice that this, this depth that Luke gives us. He's going to teach us something about the Trinity. And he began it back in Acts chapter 1. And I want to bring this to our attention. Verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Verse 34. And Peter said to him, Now, this is, this is so crucial. This is profoundly theological. Don't miss it. Jesus Christ is not in the room. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, ascended back to heaven. Jesus Christ is not an invisible force. He is a person. He is the God-man. He is physically seated at the right hand of God in heaven now, and he was when this text was written. Jesus, in the flesh, was not in the room. But Peter walks up to the paralyzed dude and he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now, let's connect some dots. Back in Acts chapter 2, Peter, along with the other believers, were filled with the Holy Spirit for ministry at Pentecost. So now, and, and a theme throughout Acts is the filling of the Holy Spirit. So Peter, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, walks in, performs a miracle, but he does so under the name and in the authority of Jesus Christ. This is important. In verse 34, Peter does not say, Aeneas, the Holy Spirit, heals you. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Go back to Acts chapter 3. There was a man that had been crippled from birth. 
And notice what Peter does again. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke gives all the time to make sure we understand that. In the power of the Spirit, Peter looks at the man paralyzed from birth in verse 6. And he says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. Notice what he says. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So here's what I want us to see. In these texts... There is a connection between the person and work of the Holy Spirit to the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have to see this to understand God and the Bible and the gospel and Christianity. At Pleasant Valley, we are Trinitarian. That's a fancy way of saying we believe the Scripture teaches there is one God who exist in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now here's the context in Acts. Many scholars appropriately refer to the book of Acts as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one scholar, F.F. Bruce, writes, and I quote, In all the book, there is nothing which is unrelated to the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the implication that the Holy Spirit is referenced 56 times in the book of Acts. You're like, what's the big deal about that? Well, that's an average of at least twice every chapter. But compare that to the rest of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is referenced in all the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined only 34 times. And then in Paul's two longest letters, Romans and 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit is referenced 45 times. And then in John's gospel, in all the other letters in the New Testament, the Spirit is only referenced 21 times, but 56 times in the book of Acts alone. So here's what the Bible is communicating. When the Holy Spirit came down in great power on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this ushered us into a new age in the kingdom of God that we're still in today in chapter in, in 2019. We are still in what Joel the prophet in Joel chapter 2 and Peter said are the last days. Peter saw that fulfilled, that prophecy, when the Spirit came down at Pentecost. We are in the age of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is uniquely at work in the kingdom of God. And the church did not graduate out of that era when Acts was over. This is why Jesus said in John 16, nevertheless... I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says something that's kind of hard for us to grapple with sometimes. He says, when I leave, the Holy Spirit is coming and you'll be better off for it. And so as we're studying the book of Acts, you're studying the acts of the Holy Spirit. But if you stop there, you're not telling the whole story. And you're, you're disconjoining the, the Trinity in a way that God does not. The Trinity does not disconnect after Pentecost. So, so for example... Let's put some flesh on this. We deny outright oneness Pentecostal theology. 
which is a fancy way of saying that God revealed himself as Father at one point, and then as the Son at another point, and now the Spirit in another point. But they would say that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not three distinct persons. But we come to the Scripture and say, no, The Bible says God always has been going back to Genesis chapter 1 to the very end. God always has been and God always will be Father, Son, and Spirit simultaneously. But it also means this. If you have a church or a movement or a denomination that emphasizes the person and work of the Holy Spirit such that they diminish the glory of the Father and the centrality of Christ the Son, then you have a misrepresentation of the Trinity and a dishonoring of God himself. So a church could say, well, we're spirit-filled, but if Jesus Christ is not preeminently exalted, that is not a spirit-filled church. It may be an emotionally charged, driven in church, but it's not a spirit-filled church because by definition, a Holy Spirit-filled church always gets you to the primary message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You go back to the very beginning of the book of Acts. And notice how Luke intentionally right out of the gate connects the person and work of the Spirit to the person and work of Christ. Notice what he does at the very beginning of Acts chapter 1 verse 1. He says in the first book, and that's Luke's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Third synoptic gospel. He's in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the most important word in verse 1 is the word began. That is why you read the scripture slowly and carefully, and you say, Spirit, show me what I'm not seeing here. The most important word in the verse is the word began. Because Luke says that when Jesus ascended back to heaven at at the end of Luke, Jesus' work was not finished. But the work of Jesus was just getting started. He's like, I've just told you what he began to do, implying he's still doing stuff. Now, the atoning work of Christ was finished at the cross. Every sin was paid for. Christ said it, that's the work of the cross, is finished. But now Luke comes along and says, but the ministry of Jesus Christ is still in full operation. Jesus is seated in heaven, but it's not because he's not still doing work. The work of Christ is still in full operation. How? If he's up there, how's he still working here? And it's through the person and work of the Holy Spirit, who is paramount in the book of Acts. Which is why Jesus tells us in John 15, 26, notice Jesus gives us the theology of the Trinity. All three persons of the Trinity crammed into one little verse. Jesus says, but when the helper comes, that's the Greek word paraclete, that's one who comes alongside, that's the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. So notice, Jesus says, I'm sending him, but he's coming from the Father. So the Father and the Son are cooperating and sending the Spirit. 
There's no disconnect. There's no frustration. There's no competition in heaven. There's cooperation. The Father and the Son are not threatened by the Spirit. The Spirit is not threatened by the supremacy of the Father. The Son is not agitated that the Father is the one who sent the Son. There's submission, and yet there's love and harmony and glory. So Jesus says, I will send you the Spirit from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, and He will bear witness about me, the Son. You see, so while the Holy Spirit is in many ways the main character of the book of Acts, the work of the Holy Spirit is the ongoing work of Jesus Christ Himself. Which is why Luke comes along later in Acts chapter 16, verse 7, and he refers to the Holy Spirit as, guess what? He says He is the Spirit of Christ. So you're like, what does all that mean? Well, here's, here's the implication. Pleasant Valley. If we want to know and see more of Jesus, then Jesus says, beg and plead for the presence of the Holy Spirit because you don't get one without the other. This is why we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and move mightily among us. Because if He doesn't, we can't see Christ. We can't understand the Bible without the aid of the Holy Spirit. We can't see souls saved. We can't repent of sin. We can't be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and the fruits because of the fruits of the Spirit without Him. Church, we need to see Christ because Paul says to see Christ is to see the glory of the Father. So we worship the Father and we worship the Son and we worship the Holy Spirit and we do it because they're God three in one, which is why I love that old hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. The hymns are so profoundly theological. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And that is why for the glory of the Father, in today's text, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says to the paralyzed man, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is the God of the Bible. And in the same way that the Holy Spirit exalted Christ and turned people to Jesus in the book of Acts, so today the Holy Spirit gets us to Jesus and one of the ways he does that is through a meal Jesus has given us, a meal called the Lord's Supper. And so I'd like to ask our ushers, if they would, um, to go ahead and, and move to their places. And brothers and sisters, uh, administering the Lord's Supper, you can go ahead and begin to pass out the bread and the cup. And then when you receive those, if, if you'll just hold on to those for a moment. But here, here's what I... I, I don't want to happen, and I, I fear that at times we, we've had a culture here where when we get to the time of the Lord's Supper, it's kind of like, well, let's just check that off the box and, and move along. This is, this is not a time to go get kids. It is not a time to go to the restroom. 
is, this is not a time to check Facebook or decide where we want to go eat lunch. This is, this is in many ways the exclamation point of the service. We are coming together to eat and drink. And I, I don't want us to, to take this sacred time and to go through it flippantly. And so I want us to listen very carefully as we approach this sacred meal. To be clear, the Lord's Supper is not for everyone. It is an exclusive meal. Jesus said in Matthew 26 that the cup represents the blood of the covenant that Jesus has made with those who repent of their sins and, and believe in Jesus. So if you're here today and you are not in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then this meal is not for us. And the fact is, this supper reminds us that we are outside of Jesus. And so I, I want to say a word to parents. If you have children with you, or even teenagers for that matter, that have not repented of their sins and believed in Jesus, this meal is not for them. And parents, you do not serve your children well if you let them eat and drink if they are not in Christ. This is not snack time. This is not goldfish and jungle juice. That is not what is going on here. And kids... If you see mom and dad partake and you're not, this is a reminder to you that you are outside of Christ and that you need a Savior. Or if you're here with your spouse and they're a believer and you're not and you're not partaking, you need to see them eat and drink and be reminded that you have sin that has separated you from a holy God and you need saving. You need forgiveness from Jesus. Or if we say that we're Christians today, but we're living in blatant, unrepentant sin, as some of us in this room are, we, we publicly profess faith in Jesus, but our lives give no evidence that we are followers of Jesus. And Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. So if, if we're here and we're living in, in open sin, unrepentant, maybe sexual sin, Habitually viewing pornography. Living in homosexuality. Premarital sex, extramarital sex. Or if our hearts are filled with bitterness or hatred. Or if we simply have no desire to read God's word and our Bibles are collecting dust. Or if we're not serving Christ's church and his kingdom. Or if we rob God by withholding tithes and offerings. If we're just not pursuing holiness, if we become complacent with our sin, we really should examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. Do we really know Jesus? Because this is a meal not for pretenders. This is not a sacramental religious practice that we do to feel better about ourselves. This is a meal for those who are in Christ unapologetically, who have abandoned the world and said, I'm a child of God. I have repented of my sins, not merely in profession, but with my life. I'm following Christ. If you've not been saved, if you've not been changed by Jesus today, there is an invitation for you to repent and believe in Jesus and be saved now. But for those of us who are in Christ, let's hear these words from 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper. In verse 17, but in the following instructions, Paul says, I do not commend you, if we could get to that text on the screen, 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So friends, if there are divisions among us as we approach the Lord's Supper this morning, Paul says, I do not commend you. It's not okay. This is a call to repentance before we partake. He says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You see, this is serious business. This is a call for introspection. And then he says down in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person then examine himself. And then, only after examination, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and from the context, that is the body of Christ. Our relationship with one another, division in the church, examine all of that. Because anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have even died. So let's bow our heads and let's just take a moment to let God's word penetrate our hearts. If it needs to cut, if it needs to convict, if it needs to soothe, let's obey God's word. Let's examine ourselves before we partake.